Good morning. We continue through this great book of Romans written by uh, the Apostle Paul. And you can see it's uh, this passage this morning, though great, again, chapter, and it's confusing and difficult. There were several times trying to work through this this week that I thought that I'm a wretched man, but I wasn't sure that that was the same way that Paul meant that he was this wretched man. One of the best books that I read uh, last year was called The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Perhaps you've read it. It's nothing new. It's been around for a long, long time. And, and in this book, the, the good Dr. Jekyll, he recognized some duality in the duality of man, and he recognized the duality of man inside of him, that there's some good and evil in him. And, and what did he seek to do? He sought to house the good in one man and house the evil in the other man. He, he tried to put them in separate identities to relieve both of them, in a sense, to relieve them from remorse, to relieve them from this sense of disgrace that they might feel for living in different ways as, as a kind of a split dual person. He, he, he tried to put them in different persons to relieve them from the burden of the struggle that you have where you have both of these people dwelling in one person. And so that's how we get the book, The, the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And it's interesting that Martin Luther, as he talked about Romans 7, he said something similar. He, he said of chapter 7, he says that it's a strange and profound teaching which the apostle sets forth in this chapter. And probably not more so than the end of this chapter here uh, in verses 13 through 25. Now the question that he sought to answer is found in verse 7. What do we say then? That the law is sin? That it's sinful? No, by no means, decidedly no. And in chapter 7, verses 7 through 12 and 13, he, he gives the, the answer as in thinking about as, he, as a Christian looks back on his life before he was a Christian and his experience with the law. And I think that then he moves from that to verses 14 and following, giving a, a decidedly no answer again, but speaking from a Christian experience. What Paul does in verses 13 through 25 is that he continues to throw all of the blame for his own state at sin. In both his pre-Christian life, the blame wasn't at the law, right? The law is not sin or sinful. And here in the Christian life, he's not saying the law is sin or sinful. In both Sin interacts with the law, and what comes out is that the law is cleared of all guilt. It's called holy and righteous and good because the problem remains, and the problem is sin. And the problem of sin is worse than we think. So this passage speaks of the problem of that sin, that it's bad. It speaks of the powerlessness of people, and that the law is clear of any charge against it, and then it throws before us this deliverer in the midst of this problem. See, the good news is that the problem is sin. It's not with the law. The problem is with sin and that there's a deliverer for that problem. Now, as I've already said, uh, I've tipped my hand a bit to what I think this passage is teaching here in verses 13 through 25. That if you're familiar with this passage, you're familiar with uh, potentially this debate around this passage of what is Paul talking about and all this, I want and I don't want, I'm sold under sin, I'm not. Is Paul speaking of, of someone who is, is he talking about his own Christian experience or is he speaking of his experience before he became a Christian? And I think that it makes the best sense to say that Paul is writing here 
from his own Christian experience. Now, that's not uh, something that is completely locked tight, and it's uh, an argument that has no holes in it, but I think that it makes the best sense of the evidence in front of us. Now, consider this evidence with me before we go through the passage. Consider this evidence that I think kind of moves through the passage. It'll help kind of set it up for us how to think of it. We start with grammar, right? In grammar, verse 13, it's this bridge. It's a question. It's bridging. It's, it's ending verse 12 and, and moving to verse 13. It has a start and an end. So it, it ends uh, this thought from verses 7 and 12, and it starts a new thought. So it sums up verses 7 through 12 and prepares us to move on to verse 14. And remember that Paul is answering the question of verse 7. He's still answering that completely throughout the rest of chapter 7. He's still after that question. And, and one Theologian says this, for the thesis that the law itself is holy, it is not enough that the unregenerate should approve of it, which he does in verses 7 through 12, but that the regenerate approve of it. That's Paul's audience, right? He wants not just someone who's an unbeliever to approve and say, if the law is holy and righteous is good, he wants his people, the people that he's writing to, these Christians in Rome, to also approve it. So Paul accordingly speaks from verse 14 on in the present tense, not to make the description more vivid, but because as a regenerate person, he loves and approves the law. And I think that it makes sense to, to look at it as saying, hey, he's answering this question from verse 7, and in verses 7 through 12, he answers it as this, hey, here's what it was like before I was a believer, and then he, he changes perspective in verse 14 and on. He says, all right, now this is what it looks like as a Christian. It's important to notice in that 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 Paul in this passage is still not primarily teaching a lesson, lesson on Christian experience. There, there's certainly Christian experience in here. There's struggle. We could talk about all of that, but that's not his primary goal, right? That's not what he's after. That's not his main aim. His main aim is answering the question of verse 7. His aim is clearing the law of all charges that could be brought against it. Clearing the law of the charge that it might be sin or sinful. And the experience as both one before he was a Christian and as a Christian, those are distinct experiences, and, and they bring something of evidence to the table in answering that question to say of the law that it's holy and righteous and good. That before he was a Christian, sin is distinct from and opposed to the law, and that when he is a Christian, sin is distinct from and opposed to the law. Both his experience with the law and sin before he was a Christian and while he was a Christian answer the question of verse 7 with a decided no, by no means. And so he, what does he do? Sin gets all the blame thrown on it and the law is cleared of all charges. His sin, he says, is the problem, not the law. And it matters to his audience that as a Christian looking at the law, he still says that sin is the problem and not the law. It matters to them that he tell them that the law is still, as a Christian, holy and righteous and good. This is a mixed audience that had a unique interest in the law and working that out, how that works out in community, especially because they're mixed. They're Jews and Gentiles. They're thinking about the law and how it comes to bear on their lives as a church, as the people of God. And so it's important for Paul to make this claim that he is holy and righteous and good, both not as just before he was a Christian, but as a Christian as well. In verse 13, this bridge verse explains, I think, why he moves sharply, and he does move sharply from verses 7 through 12 then to 13, and then he moves sharply from a, a different tense of verb to, again, consistently in verses 14 and following, the present tense. It's consistently used in verses 14 through 25, 
a present tense verb, which I think is best explained by saying he's speaking from his Christian experience there. Now, verbs in Greek are tricky, and I have such little knowledge, but here's what we know about them. They're, they're tricky with time. So present tense doesn't necessarily always mean present time, but you do need to think through how to explain what the present tense and what the different tenses might be doing, right? And, and, and while it might not be saying present time, it would be awkward to say he just switched to present tense, but he's talking about the same kinds of things that he was speaking of in verses 7 through 12. Like, there would need to be something that he would probably give us to give us a little more evidence to say that he's not shifted into a different kind of time period. All right, so that's the first one. We started with grammar, kind of the structure of the text, and even the present tense of verbs. The, the second thing is we encounter in these verses a dual man. There's kind of some Jekyll and Hyde here. A, a man who wants things, some things and then doesn't want some things. A, a man who wishes and, and doesn't wish, who hates and loves And I think that the best explanation is that he is speaking of this one man who has an old Adam in him and a new in Christ in him. All right, verses 7 through 12, they're they're somewhat simplistic, right? There's just the old man. But verses 14 and following, I think is best explained by saying there's one who's new here, new in Christ, but also has the remnants of this Adam still remaining. In Adam, there's no hatred of sin, This man, verse 15, has a hatred of sin. In Adam, there's no desire for good. This man here has a desire for good. In Adam, there's no delight in the law and the inner being. This man, verse 22, has this delight in the law and the inner being. In Adam, no one is neutral, but everyone is short of the glory of God. That's not to mean that they're close and just need to go a little further. It just means that they're far off, so far that we're just going to call them all short. They're not anywhere near. In Adam, one is an enemy with God. Not neutral, not moving in his direction, an enemy of God. In Adam, one is under the reign of sin and death, obedient slaves to sin, free, he says in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 20, in regards to righteousness, bearing fruit only to death. In other words, he says they are dead, Ephesians 2 would say it that way, dead in their sins and trespasses. In Adam, then, one doesn't delight in the law and the inner being. Right? Look at in chapter 8. I think helps explain this a little bit. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. But this man, in verse 22, says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but this man is trying to delight in this law. In Adam, one only does evil. And again, chapter 1, not only does evil, but gives approval to those who do. So if this experience in verses 14 and following is speaking of Paul, still before he was a Christian, I think it's hard to explain why he would need such a great deliverer that Jesus is. Because this is one, if he's not a Christian and he delights in the law and his inner being, has all these good wants and desires, but just not quite enough grace to get over the top, then he doesn't need this great deliverer, Jesus. He just needs a little extra help. And I think that that is convincing. I think that it's hard to explain the need for regeneration the need for a Savior to deliver and rescue and not just improve if this man that he's speaking of is before he becomes a believer. I think this man, if it's a pre-Christian experience, is hard to square with the idea of what he talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, that we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. In chapter 6, verse 12, what does he say there about our reign of sin and death? He says, let not sin therefore reign In other words, he has to say that because there is an actual battle. Not for salvation, he said that, but for this 
reality that they're living in as one who's in Adam, but also now new in Christ. There's a real battle. And this battle that Paul describes Christians as being in is a battle where he says in other places, there there are some things you need to put off and some things you need to put on. You need to get the armor on because you're not, you are wrestling, but you're not just wrestling with flesh and blood. You need to get ready. Or, Or in Galatians chapter 5 verse 17, and we'll come back to this as well. He speaks of this battle. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. And these are opposed to each other. And these exist within the Christian. And and as one author says, then the Christian is a a man of war. And so when you find this tug of war, almost the civil war of the soul here at the end of chapter 7, that doesn't explain someone who's not a Christian. That could very much explain someone who's squarely in the middle of their own redemption. They, They are battling flesh and spirit going against each other because they're a man of war. Because in Christ, with these old Adam remnants, there's this reality that's present. It's already here, but not yet fully here. You're already saved, but not yet fully and finally saved. Since since power has been broken, its penalty has been paid, but its presence, it remains while we're in this body. And so this encounter with this dual man in the end of chapter 7, I think is saying that Paul's speaking of a Christian experience. Then we move, we continue. We've, we've experienced like kind of the grammar, the setup. Now we've we looked through here. We have a dual man. We look to the conclusion in verse 25. And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he just said, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? And he says, thanks be to God. If that deliverance is describing one who is not a Christian, who then has been and experienced deliverance as a Christian from the wretchedness that he speaks of in verse 24, then I think the end of verse 25 is an anti-climax. Wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? Like, can we stop there? But he doesn't stop there, does he? So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, that's odd. If you're speaking of the deliverance that you're looking for because he's speaking of his experience before he's a Christian and you get this deliverance, he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, then then that's the climax. That's the end. But it doesn't end there. And not only is that not a climax, it's an anti-climax. But he also then says again, I serve. I serve, present tense. Again, seems to be a little bit misleading if Paul is writing of his pre-Christian experience. Is Paul like an an iffy writer? I don't think so. This is one of the best letters ever written. So if he's speaking of someone who's before Christ and then all this experience and he goes to this triumphant kind of climax and then comes back down again and still uses the present tense, then he's doing some weird gymnastics that's going to be hard for us to follow. But if he's speaking of a Christian experience of one who's dealing with right in the middle of his own redemption, already there but not yet finally and fully there, then this could, deliverance that he's speaking of, could be spoken of as, as a future deliverance. Oh, deliver me! Like, it could be, line up, and we'll look at this in a little bit, line up with chapter 8, verse 23. Deliverance, a final and full redemption. It makes sense with what verse 23 says, that we're waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Next reason is just one from our own experience that when we read through chapter 7, there's this experience that I think that we deeply uh, we, we identify with as a Christian. Most Christians can identify with the sense of struggle and duality. It's like there's some things that I want to do and it seems like right alongside that is, is evil 
and wickedness, and my heart seems to deceive me at times. Most Christians can identify with that. No one is so perfect, I don't think, they couldn't say, I do the things I hate at times. And so it makes sense to line up with an actual Christian experience. Now, now what Paul isn't doing, and here's where we can get off, is he's not teaching specifically, the aim is not for telling you about Christian experience. He's using experience to teach us about the law and sin. And so what he's not doing is saying that chapter 7 is the only Christian experience there is. As if there's no chapter 8 and no chapter 6. We don't want to read this text in isolation of those. It's just one of the chapters in the middle of all of those. So this isn't the only Christian experience without chapter 8, without chapter 6. But it is a Christian experience, it seems. It seems to fit in within our own Christian experience. He doesn't say it's the prevailing experience. It is an experience. And so that's another reason. And then the last is just a compelling list of authors, all right? Uh, we can go down the list of people. I think some of us at least share their, our admiration for their work. We could go with Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Owen, John Newton, John Murray, all the Johns, I think. Actually, John Stott's not. He's a little bit nuanced view here. But J.I. Packer, Tom Schreiner, I mean, people that we look to, they're all saying these kinds of things. And, and one of the things that, about that list they're just men. We, we don't follow them. They're not our Lord. But, but here's what I think is compelling is that two of them that we really appreciate, we've quoted Tom Schreiner a lot around here. He switched his position to this position. So I was like, hey, that's compelling. And he did it like not too long ago. So he's been thinking about this for a long time and he came to this position. So I'm like, I should just go with where you're at now. Augustine also switched his position in this direction as well. And so as, as I say that, this view is not without challenges. It's not without weaknesses. It seems to make the best sense of the evidence. That's what I'd say. You shouldn't die for it. I'm not dying for it. We can be charitable disagreements and us not understanding this in the same way. And no matter where you are, I think that we can receive so much from this text. It's profitable, isn't it? For teaching, for training, for correction, for reproof in righteousness, no matter where we see this. And so after looking at that, let's look to the text. So Paul has said... Verses 7 through 12, and again, he's going after that question of verse 7, that what the law did is it came in and it revealed his sin. It showed his sin. It dusted up his sin. It shone the light on his sin. It provoked the sin that was already present. And he concludes with verses 12 and 13 of all of that. It says, so the law, what does he say? It's holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here's the bridge, verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? Are we going to throw the, the blame on, on the law? No, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Sin is shown to be exceedingly sinful. The good and holy law not only does not have the power to stop this sin, but even the law gets used by sin to produce more sin so that the sin that is there is even shown to be even more sinful. That shows the, the law comes in and shows the hideous nature of sin. And when we look at the nature of sin, let me just say that it's worse than we think. It's worse than probably we know. And the law reveals part of this for us. And the more we go into the law, the more we're going to see that it's worse than I thought it was. Far from revealing a neutral humanity, what the law does is show sin's exceedingly sinful nature. It's beyond measure. What the law does, it comes and it says of sin, not that you just, you've just kind of messed up. That's language we use. Not that just you're, like you're, you're a little bit off. You just hung up on this one area. It says of us you're exceedingly sinful. 
Sinful beyond measure. Sin gets all the blame, though, doesn't it? He doesn't say the law's the problem. If that law weren't around, we wouldn't be shown to be exceedingly sinful. He says sin gets the blame, and what is the ultimate cause of death? Sin. Sin is the cause of death. That's where he's throwing the blame at. That's what's the cause of death. It's the wages of sin in 623 that's death. The law is cleared of all charges. And so with that, he moves to verse 14. Because he continues, we, we know that the law is spiritual. That's good, right? We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm on the flesh, sold under sin. Now, admittedly, this is a difficult one for the position that I have taken to say this speaks of a Christian experience. It seems hard to fit this in with the Christian experience. Like, how could he be a Christian and say the things he said in verse 14, that we know the law is spiritual, but I'm sold, I'm, I'm on, of the flesh, sold under sin? That's a difficult one. But notice what he says. He says, we know, in verse 14. Who's the we? That's Paul, and he's speaking to the Roman Christians. They they are together. We. Paul and the Roman Christians, they're together. That's the we. We know this, he says, in verse 14. And then he moves. And he says, but I. That I, it's a clear link. That I is the same I that was the part of the we. Paul Christian, Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans, we, then he comes off and says, but I, I, the one who is a part of that we. So I think, again, that's an indication that this isn't young Paul, the young man in Tarsus. This isn't Paul the Pharisee, unless he's, again, using some weird language tricks. This is Paul the Apostle writing to Christians in Rome. Paul makes a contrast, though, here between the law, which is spiritual, and the flesh, the I, that is fleshly. He says, I'm of the flesh. Now, what does that mean? Of the flesh means made of flesh. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, it speaks of the flesh versus stone, right? So it, it's not stone, it, it's fleshly. It's of the flesh, of the body. There's some physicality to it. But it's more than that. It's also ethical. So it's, it's physical but ethical. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, he speaks of this flesh, and in this flesh, there's ethical things, right? Behaving in a way that's ungodly. So we have both kind of some physical and some ethical mixed into thinking of Paul saying, I'm of the flesh. And in verse 14, he says, I'm sold under sin. So especially here in verse 14, that fleshliness has to coordinate with some ethical things. The ethical reality is front and center when he says, I'm of the flesh. But notice what of the flesh qualifies here. Not Paul. He says, uh, I am of the flesh, and it's qualified by sold under sin. Not I am of the flesh and sold under sin. I am of the flesh, here we're going to qualify it, sold under sin. So sold, this is a word that's only used here in Paul. He doesn't reach for Romans 6 language, although you might think that. Like, man, didn't we just hear about being sold under sin? Sounds like Romans 6. He doesn't reach for that language, although that was present and available to him. He doesn't go there. He goes to a word that he hasn't used here because I think that he's not saying the same things he's saying in Romans 6 here. He's saying something different of the flesh. And he qualifies that by saying that is sold under sin. I think one commentator helps us. This is actually the man that changed Tom Schreiner's mind, if that's helpful to you. He says, being fleshly is fundamentally an issue of personal capacity. What am I? Paul isn't saying he's a slave of sin and contradicting what he just said about the believer's freedom in chapter 6. 
We now have freedom through Christ, or through union with Christ in his death and resurrection, but our bodies don't yet share Christ's risen life. So there's still a slavery in our bodily members as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. All right, there's slavery in our members. So he's going to say that in 723, and then it lines up with chapter 8, verse 23. So he says that's what it means to be fleshly. I think that's why Paul goes on to say and ground verse 14 when he says, I'm sold, I'm of the flesh sold under sin. I think he grounds that in verse 15 where he says, I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but the, I do the very thing that I hate. Sold under sin is a, a state that involves verse 15, the struggle of verse 15. And not understanding that goes into this is not understanding... This is not this not understanding because there's chapter 6 realities here. There's a not understanding because there's mixed realities. This is a mixed will. This is a mixed Paul. Like He wants some things and he doesn't want some things. He's not just a slave to sin like Romans 6. That's a simple reality to think of in one way. Slave to sin. That's all you do. Here there's something mixed. And so Paul doesn't fully understand it. I think what he doesn't understand is the, the depth of his sin that, that's still present within him because now he's in Christ, but there's some Adam here that he doesn't quite fully understand. Evil seems to be mysterious to him because at one level, it's not what he wants. And so it's, it's depth, the depth of, of evil is, is not understood by him. And this fleshly struggle doesn't then lead him again to, to answer the verse seven question in a negative way doesn't give him a negative view of the law look what he says he's already said that the law is spiritual and then he verse 16 he says now if i do what i do not want i agree with the law that it is good the law is not probably or not the problem in the equation he says of the law it's good not a lot of unbelievers are saying of the law that like look at that it's pointing out my sin revealing my sin that must be good but that's what Paul says here. It's the law's assessment of his actions that calls them evil, that he says that assessment of those actions is good. And that definition of what is good and not good, he calls that good. He agrees with the law, and so he concludes. Verse 17. So now, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Now, what Paul isn't doing here is shirking responsibility. It sounds like that, isn't he? Like, well, it's sin. That's the problem, and it's not really my fault. He's not doing that. Where does this sin dwell? Within him. It's in him. It's still part of the eye that he speaks of all the way through here. He doesn't separate it out. He doesn't shirk responsibility. It's part of the eye all the way through. But the description of the sin that's in him now seems to be a description, almost like an alien description. Like it's there, but it doesn't belong. Almost like a, like a phantom limb of some sorts. Like it's just moving. I don't know how. It just keeps moving. And I don't understand it. Like I keep saying not to, and it just keeps going. Kind of like a phantom limb. I think that it's, it's thought of as almost like the, the body, the physical body, which he's speaking of, of, in the flesh, the fleshliness and the members that he's going to speak of in a little bit, hasn't caught up with his identity fully in Christ. The flesh is lagging behind his in Christness that he has as a state before God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says that, that outwardly I'm wasting away, but inwardly I'm being renewed day by day. There's like kind of diverging realities going on, wasting away, but being renewed. It, it, the body still remains. It hasn't risen yet, but, but internally we know that that's not true. In Christ, we, we have a new reality. 
And so he's saying, I think here, that the body's lagging behind. And it's still doing some things, and I don't even understand it fully. It's lagging behind my in-Christness that I have and that I know that I have. There's an out of syncness to the Christian life in the flesh because sin, although its power has been broken and its penalty is invaded, its, its presence remains and it's still very present and it's deeper than we thought, harder to unravel than we thought. And so he seems as if to be this man who's out of sync. Now, regardless of whether you agree that this is the Christian experience or before he was a Christian Here's what is happening here, and everybody agrees on this, that this is a Christian, the Apostle Paul, describing, giving a description of the human condition. And this is a human condition that cannot be ignored. The Christian is the one who perceives that this is the human condition, but all have this condition. And what this does is this helps us address everything in our lives. It helps us address the world and explain the problems in the world. You remember the the quote that, they, they were asking the question, what's wrong with the world? And one author wrote back just two words, I am. That, that's what it's getting at. Right? We can look at the world, and there's all the problems in the world, and we can look at all of them, and they are complex, and they have ties to all sorts of different things, and they're hard to unwind. And you could look at all those and say that they are complex, but they all are going to boil down to the one truly comprehensive explanation, and it's all the same. The problem at the root of all of them is sin rebellion to God. That is the world's problem. So when you say, I am, he gets it right, right? Because he knows, who am I? I'm a sinner. And so that's the problem. The problem is sin. This helps us address ourselves. I'm, I'm a sinner. I need to know that in order to address myself rightly. It helps us address our children, right? They're not neutral. Sinners. Helps us address one another in Christian fellowship, right? We're we're not neutral. We're, we're sinners. Now, again, there's more than that, but we are that. So we need to remember that. It helps us address unbelievers. Their problem isn't another kind of problem, although they might have other kinds of problems. Their primary problem is the problem of sin. It's my primary problem. It's everyone's primary problem. And it's worse than we think. And if you look at this, even if you don't agree with what this experience is, is this before Paul is a Christian or after, you need to see this and say, it's bad. The Apostle Paul is, is lacking comprehension, and he's a pretty smart guy. The depth of sin goes all the way down. It's worse than he thinks. He didn't know how far down it went, and he starts looking around. It's like, it goes really far. I don't even understand it. We don't live in this neutral world. We live in a fallen world. We're not neutral people in this fallen world. We're sinful people, and that sin goes down further than we think. It's worse than we think. But what Paul does is he pinpoints where the presence of sin resides. He further identifies the problem, which again is not the law, but a sin. Look in verse 18. It says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Again, this might be hard to square. Like, how could a Christian say nothing good dwells in me? But again, he qualifies it, doesn't he? That is in my flesh. He's he delimits it. He delimits what he means by nothing good dwells in me. He draws a boundary. Nothing good dwells in me, and I'm going to limit that boundary for what I'm talking about there, and that means in my flesh. So it's true to say of the flesh that no good dwells in it. That's the, the, the part that's wholly under Adam that hasn't been finally and fully resurrected yet. It's the, the body lagging behind what we know is true of our state in Christ. How does he know that no good dwells within his flesh? Well, Look at verse 18. 
19 and 20. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. But I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There are clear desires here in this man. Clear desires for what is right and good. But what is evil, again, the labels in all these are right. What is evil is what is done, he says. And in the middle of that, the struggle is really, really clear. Look at the structure, verses 17 through 20. 17 and 20 kind of bookend here. They are parallels. 17 says, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. 20, no, now if I do what I don't want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. That bookends and is, is delimited and explained by verses 18 and 19. So as to say, even where there's desire for right and good, there's still this problem that exists. This intrinsic inability because of the flesh that I have, because of my own sin that's within me. And so these verses, 17 through 20, Paul gives us almost this palpable sense of his internal powerlessness. And that powerlessness and inability here in these verses, I think he intends his Christian readers to see and know. Now again, in my opinion, I think he's speaking of a Christian experience. Again, not the only Christian experience. Romans 8 is coming. Power of the Spirit is coming. And talking about life in the Spirit, that's coming. But I think Paul does want his readers to feel the weight of chapter 7. I even think he wants them to feel it as Christians. That's my opinion, but you can see the weight of seven regardless of what you think of this text. Is even if you think, this is Paul speaking of his life before he's a Christian, there's a recognition of the reality of these chapter sevens in life that we have to speak to, and Paul speaks to them. And he digs down deep into his own experience, and what he unearths in that experience is a real powerlessness in the face of his own sin. And he just kind of sits down in it here for a while. A few verses. He sits in it and he lets his readers sit in it. And I think he waits. I think he waits because chapter 7 is a Christian's life. All right, where's the power of the Spirit of chapter 8? Where's the assurance that I'm not going to be separated from the love of God? He waits soon. That's coming soon. But he lets us sit in this for a while. And I like how one... Commentator describes it. Think of the Christian's personal life as a house with different aspects. Romans 7 depicts the cold, shadowed side that faces away from the sun. Romans 8 shows us the warm side where the sunshine is seen and felt. We're ready for that, aren't we? Like, let's get us to the sunshine. I want to feel the sun. Here we are in chapter 7, and this wretched man is speaking to me, and it's all cold and shade. Get me to the sun. But he says this, and I agree with this. We do and must live, so to speak, in both chapters together every day of our lives. I wonder this morning if you feel the coldness that he speaks of here. The coldness of chapter 7. Do you feel the shadow of chapter 7 in your life? Do you feel the weight of chapter 7? Here's what I think is true is that chapter 7s are present no matter what you think of this text. But it's not the only chapter in the scripture. It's not the only experience. It is a real experience, and I think it's a vital experience 
But it's not the only experience. And so what I think Paul does when he lets us sit in it is he lets us first grasp as best as we can this internal inability that we have, this powerlessness that we have before we move on to the greater realities of life in the Spirit and truths of the gospel. Which I think when we get to chapter 8 will give us a greater appreciation of those truths and of that gospel. He's going to move on. There are other experiences that he'll talk about, but not before he lets us feel our own inability. He lets the readers sit. And he even reiterates some of this stuff, doesn't he? It's like, you said this already, now you're saying it again kind of differently, and I'm confused even more. Now you're going to say it again, because that's what he's going to do in verse 21. He's going to kind of conclude and reiterate. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And my former church in Kentucky they wrote this song called Dark Passenger. And, and the, the lyrics go like this, Dear God, dismiss the dark passenger who commandeers the wayward will. I think that's the, a description of what Paul is talking about here. He's describing this law, or we could say a principle, is the way he uses it here, of a dark passenger that's with him always, that he can't seem to shake, that's always there and always ready to commandeer his wayward will, his his will that wants some good things, but is still not finally and fully redeemed, right? And, and it, this dark passenger commandeers and wants to commandeer that wayward will. Now, that wayward will is not all that's there. He says he wants to do what is right. He even says, look at verse 22. I delight in the law in my inner being. So there's more than just an evil lying close at hand. He, he delights in the law of God in his inner being. There's some good desires and wants here. Now, now, some would look at that and say, uh, again, if you're thinking, mate, this couldn't be Paul as a Christian, this has to be Paul before he's a Christian, and say, like, hey, this, this is a kind of a pharisaical way of delighting in the law. This isn't true delight of the law in the way that Christians would talk about it. Some would say that, but, but I think about the rich young man who, who comes to Jesus, says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, just, you know, keep those commandments. And he's like, I did all that. There was a delight, right? I, I'm delighted to do the law externally. And so Jesus pushes in. Why don't you go sell everything you have and follow me? Where was that man's delight? Was it in the law of the Lord? We would say no, decidedly no, because he leaves Jesus sad. You couldn't delight in the law of God rightly and leave Jesus sad, right? And I think that this saying of a delight in the inner being is a true delight, the, the kind of Psalm 1 man. What does the Psalm 1 do, man do? He, he doesn't walk in a certain way. He certainly wouldn't walk away from Jesus sad, but he delights in the law and he, he meditates on it day and night so that in even dry seasons, it bears fruit for God. It's not one who's going to externally delight in the law and then leave Jesus sad when he tells him something hard like, go sell everything and follow me. It's this kind of delight in the inner being that says, oh, I love God in my inner being and I will sell everything I have for the joy of being with Jesus. And so I think it fits with what Paul says here in, again in chapter 8. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. I cannot square that with saying that I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I think that fits and bolsters what verse 22 is getting at. But notice again, right when we feel like we have some clarity, yes, delighting in the law in my inner being, the dark passenger is there. Right along with his delight is another law, verse 23. 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. How many laws are there? They're everywhere and they're causing problems, it seems. But the law's not the problem. Sin's the problem. The, the law waging war, in verse 23, is parallel to the law of sin. Right? So that's the law of sin. This law, this principle, this power of sin, we could say, is waging war against what? The law of my mind, which is parallel to the law of God. And so within Paul, within Paul's members, within his body, a war is raging. And it seems as if sin is winning against an unwilling Paul. But he limits it again, doesn't he? In my members. Two times he says that, which contrasts with what in this verse? His mind. I think what that does is it emphasizes the the fleshliness of Paul. That he bodily is lagging behind where his mind is. Like he's in Christ, but there's some parts members of him, some actual part of him that's lagging behind his in-Christness. Members that don't share the resurrection yet are lagging behind his mind that has already been turned to delight in the law in his inner being. And so because that is true, there's this civil war going on inside him. Amen. And one author said that a true Christian is one who has war within. He would go on to say that a Christian is a man of war. The thought that Christians only live victorious lives where we're always just trampling over our enemies, that we're always winning every single struggle, that everything seems to be put under our feet. The thought that Christians live only that kind of life shouldn't exist. Even if you don't agree with me on chapter 7, it shouldn't exist. Look at what Paul says in chapter 5 of the book of Galatians. Again, we go back here as it seems to be this parallel thought. I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. I think that lines up with what Paul is saying in chapter 7. But even if you don't agree there, you can agree here that there is a battle going on that Paul speaks of with when, when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates, brings life to dead people, makes them believers, there's a battle that starts to wage. It's not when the battle stops. In some ways it stops. Enmity with God has been broken. It's over. It's done with. But here in the flesh, on this earth, that's when the battle actually begins. Before, the battle wasn't really raging on that heart because you kept giving in to sin over and over again. A slave to sin. But then, when the Spirit comes and you can start to delight in the law truly in your inner being, that's when the war actually starts happening. There ought to be a struggle and a war in you, Christian. But in this war, it's good, it's right, indeed, I think it's vital to come to the end of ourselves because we're unable to get away from this dark passenger. And I think that's where Paul goes. With the inability he has to win, look what he says in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Again, this is an experience. 
not all coming to the end of ourselves and the struggle with flesh and spirit is going to end, I think, with this cry of, oh my goodness, I'm wretched. But that's a real experience. This seems to line up with the groaning in verse 23 of chapter 8. Very much speaking of the redeemed, he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first roots of the Spirit, we are groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's a Christian groan because redemption is present but not final and full and the body is still not resurrected. And so there's a groaning for it to be. And I think that lines up with what Paul is groaning for in verse 25. Wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from, again, this body of death, body language, and this wretched body he cries. But notice the cry. He's at the end of himself. Who, he says, is going to deliver me? Not what, who? Paul comes to the end of himself and he knows that no thing, no number of steps, no program, no anything else that we can come up with in all of creation can deliver us from the body of death. It's only a who. And he answers his question in verse 25. Thanks be to God through our Lord, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Dr. Jekyll he couldn't solve the problem. He, he divided the man out and it destroyed him. Paul, he, he tries to figure this out. He can't solve him. But he speaks of deliverance, not destruction. Why? Because he has a different who that's coming for his deliverance. This who is the one that he spoke of in chapter 1. The one who was descended from David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. This is the one, chapter 3, verse 25, God put forward as the propitiation for our sins, our very righteousness, who in chapter 4, verse 25, was delivered up for our trespasses, raised for our justification, who in chapter 5, verse 8, he was the display of the love of God when we were still sinners. Indeed, he himself is our reconciliation. He is the one who in chapter 6, verse 23, he brings grace so that we might have eternal life. It's only found in him. Thanks be to God, Paul says, for that deliverer. And I want to close the scene, right? I want to say amen and like, let's pray and I'm done. But Paul doesn't. And so he says, to conclude, so then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. The war's still on. And we're right back in the tension of the whole text. The dark passenger remains. The, the mind is in Christ, but the body is lagging behind what is true of him, right? It's true of him and there's some lagging in him. I think that's because this struggle with sin that he speaks of, that's so square and clear in verse 25b that this is a Christian experience that he speaks of. 
because we do have verse 25a. Who's going to save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, he delivers me. It's a present deliverance, but it's not a final deliverance, is it? It's not full. We look forward to that. As Christians, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our final and full adoption, the redemption of our bodies. I think that's the tension he speaks of in verse 25. So what do we do then? Here's what we do, I think, as Christians who read chapter 7, regardless if you agree with how I've read it or not. Here's what we do. We go to war. Galatians 5 says, go to war. Ephesians 6 says, go to war. Start struggling. Fight. Christian, you are a man or woman of war. Put on the armor of God. You've got to fight. There's a real fight and effort that it takes to live the Christian life. Not for your salvation, not to gain the Spirit, but because you have the Spirit and now empowers that fight and that battle. So go to war. But here's what we do. We go to war, but we look to and we expect deliverance. It's present. It's with us always to the end of the day, age and its future. And it is so interesting that the Lord's Supper is a time when we do that, right? We, we fight. It's a means of fighting, but it's, it's a... It's, This is present in me. You're saying this meal, and if you can't say this, please don't take the meal. You're saying this meal, I've trusted in Jesus. I'm united to him. By my faith in him, I have a seat at the table of God. I don't deserve it, haven't earned it. He did it, and I get a place there. That's what you're saying at this meal. It's a present reality, but it's not full and final, right? We're taking this meal until he returns. So it looks forward. So thanks be to God for this deliverer. And for this deliverer, we still are groaning Inwardly, as we wait eagerly for his final and full return, and we take this meal in that kind of hope. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you know better than we do the depth of our sin. God, you know that there is a very dark passenger who is along for the ride while we still live in this flesh. And you, Father, you know that far too often we are influenced by that passenger. We are prone to follow him and not you. Because it's comfortable, it's familiar, it's what we have known in our past. And yet, God, you have delivered us from the darkness. You have delivered us from the judgment that we deserve because we gave ourselves to that darkness. And Father, whether Paul's true intentions were to explain his life as a believer or not, which we feel very strongly. That's what the text is saying. We, we know that so much of his writing deals with the practical do's and don'ts of the Christian life. And he warns us not to do things because we are capable of doing those things. We are capable of sinning and we do. And yet, God, you've given us power through Christ to overcome You've already won the war. You've just asked us to fight in the temporary, God. You've asked us to to obey you 
and to glorify you and to make disciples. And God, it is a war. We know it. We all feel it. We feel it in our sin. We feel it in our victory. I just pray, Father, that you would help us to be a people of war, that you would help us to see that the battle rages within us and without us, Lord. And the best we can do and the only thing we can do, Lord, is to look to you for strength to win and strength to try our best in faith to convince others that you are worth fighting for, that what you did on the cross is all they need, and it's all we need. God, we're grateful that you were pleased to give us your word, to encourage us by it. We're thankful that Paul himself, even as he grew older, his own understanding of himself and his, his own self-assessment was, was just going down. And his, while his view of you was just increasing, Lord, he saw as he drew closer to you at the end of his life, he saw your glory and your holiness and, and he saw the corruption of his own flesh. And he wrote about it. And we're so thankful, God, that we can be encouraged in knowing that even when we fail, Lord, you're with us. We can get back up because you've given us the strength to do it. Father, thank you for being so good and so kind. Your grace is truly amazing. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.